I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, it's our Made in BC book club featuring two authors. In the book Decrim, Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor of Vancouver, outlines how ending the war on drugs and recognizing the overdose crisis as a public health issue will help reduce stigma related to substance abuse, increase access to health services, and decrease harms related to criminalization in British Columbia. The opposite of decriminalization is criminalization. So if you think arresting a 15-year-old kid who has some cocaine on them is going to somehow help them, it's not. And I think that's where people get scared. You get so much propaganda from the United States, but really we trust our doctors and they're the ones giving advice here that really is what we're following. We're also chatting with Margot Fedoric of Gabriola Island. Through humor and quirky characters, Margot reflects on marriage, motherhood, isolation, food, and family. Cooking Tips for Desperate Fishwives is a memoir infused with recipes from the Eastern European fair of Margot's childhood to more adventurous coastal BC cuisine. I put a lot of details in there about our life, intimate details. He supports me wholly on the book. He believes in me, but he says, I just can't read it. And I understand and I totally get it. I have two daughters, one who's read it and one who is not. It's just maybe too close. I actually have people sometimes come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe what you put in that book, sex. Rick will walk by and he'll go, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say, oh, never mind, dear, never mind. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Margo. Thanks for having me. Born in Winnipeg, you moved out to the BC coast in your early 20s. On the back cover of your book, you mentioned when you arrived in British Columbia, you were planting trees, topless. Oh, why, you may ask? I don't know. I guess I was young and I wanted to feel wild and free. Tree planters were a wild lot anyway. Some people tree planted totally nude. And I thought, wow, that looks great. But then I'm a little bit practical, like a wee bit. And I thought there's a lot of bugs and stuff. Topless seemed perfect. Where were you working? Up north in Prince George area. You've taken your life experiences of love of food and combined them with the book, Cooking Tips for Desperate Fishwives. Have you always wanted to write? Yes. I was the classic big reader as a child. I used to get in trouble for reading under the covers at night and waking up grumpy because I had no sleep. But writing seemed so amazing and magical that I didn't think I could do it. It wasn't until years later that I took some free classes through the library, and then I slowly started taking a few online classes, like through Athabasca University, and it gave me confidence to actually take a whole creative writing program at VIU. Did I see somewhere that you worked as a book reviewer at one point? I did that sort of in between going to school. Yeah, it sort of gave me a little bit of credibility as a writer. The BC Review was very receptive to my reviews. If I had more time, I'd still do it. Working as a book reviewer would give you great insight into what actually makes a great book, wouldn't it? What makes a good read? Yeah, sure it would, even though I would love to write an amazing novel and I can tell what great writing is. It doesn't mean necessarily I know how to do it, (laughs) but yeah, sure, it would give me some good ideas. I love a book that pulls you in right from the start, like the very first paragraph. And that's what I found with your book. I wasn't sure where you were going, but it certainly was intriguing on that first line. Yeah. 
Well, I knew it would catch readers' attention for sure. And the first line for folks is, the night I ran over Rick with my car. Yeah, it was quite the night. And it's funny because I used to tell the story, and that's how a lot of my stories came about. I'd tell them to friends and laugh or cry or a little bit of both. And then eventually I'm realizing, damn, that would be a great opening to my memoir. The night I ran over Rick with my car. You tagged that chapter with a recipe entitled Killer Lasagna, another good chuckle, a little bit of dark humor. I think that's my personality. You've got to take the good with the bad, the love with the pain. I think it outlines the way I wrote my whole book. And so did you have a box full of all these little anecdotes everywhere, or did you keep journals? Or I've always kept a diary, but the way I keep my diaries make no sense. They're not chronological. They're sometimes on little pieces of paper. So yes, I definitely had written a lot of the stories down, but I also interviewed family and friends if I couldn't remember details. So how many years of taking notes are we talking about? These are notes from the 80s, dare I say, how that dates me for sure. A lot of old books out there. We should explain as a desperate fishwife, you are married to an urchin diver. That's correct. When I was writing it, I was thinking, geez, people might find this interesting that here I am, a prairie girl who had no idea about the coast. I meet and fall in love with an urchin diver. How is that going to work out? Is it going to work out good? Is it going to work out bad? I think my book explains it perfectly. I should also add there's a what looks like a pretty good recipe for sea urchin fettuccine. Oh, so good. We're lucky that we get fresh urchin. In the old days, when we were first together, I never would touch it. It just seemed too strange. But now I know how amazing it is, and it's like a delicacy. And oh, so good. I understand you also worked on the boat with your husband while he was diving. So tell us about that. There must be a few good stories. There are a few good stories, and they are in my memoir. I guess I first went up to work as a dive tender for him. I was this little woman trying to haul up urchins over the side of the boat, and I guess the funny part was I could never start the engine. I wasn't strong enough to pull the urchins over the side of the boat, so basically I was useless, but I loved it up there. It was beautiful. And then later, when I was pregnant, and I was very lonesome, and Rick was away a lot, and that's what some of the book is about, is my dealing with my loneliness... So I went up when I was pregnant, and all the fun that ensued there when I was cooking vegetarian meals for the divers, they weren't very happy about that. They'd want to eat some of that catch, wouldn't they? I don't know. It's funny. They ate a lot of meat and potatoes. Where are we talking about? Sometimes we went to Ida Gwaii. Basically, we'd go straight out of Prince Rupert and 50, 100 miles from there. Did you ever dive with your husband? No. I am a self-described chicken. To me, it sounds terrifying, and no. I should clarify that the book really is more memoir than cookbook, but there's some great recipes in there, some from the coast, some from the prairies. I guess I started the stories, obviously, with the killer lasagna, because it made sense, but then something like my mother would make or my Russian grandmother, my baba, like Pilmeni or Blintz's. And then as I moved out to the coast, I became more adventurous. We'd go and pick blackberries, and there'd be a recipe for blackberry pie. So I guess I like how the stories intertwine with my life. 
So, Margo, readers of the book contact you and they say, I absolutely love the story about, and what more often than not do they come up with for a favorite? There isn't any. I think it's whatever a person is closest to their heart. Some people say they love the opening when I'm in Winnipeg, the background of me growing up with my grandparents, my babas. This always warms my heart. Fishermen will call my husband or reach out to him and say, oh, I loved it. My wife does the same thing where she wears my clothes when I'm away. Some people, they'll reach out and go, oh, it just reminds me of my tree planting days. So I feel like there hasn't been one particular chapter that's really drawn people. Do you have a favorite? I like the one about vacuuming and my mother. A lot of the book obviously has a lot to do about loneliness and yearning and missing people. And I feel like when I wrote that chapter, it actually helped me work through a very hard relationship with my mother who is long gone. So for some reason, that chapter has like a very close part in my heart. As you say, this book is about life. It's about raising kids, taking care of your parents and your in-laws. It's about everything. I'm of a certain age where I've lived a lot of my life. So I put a lot in there, and I hope it's reached a lot of people's hearts. You've spent a lot of years on Gabriola Island just off of Nanaimo, a pretty idyllic spot to raise children. My kids, they're West Coast kids for sure. It was fabulous. Really, even if you didn't have much money and we couldn't afford to go on holidays, all you had to do was throw the kids in the back of the car and drive down to the beach in 10 minutes. And we used to joke at the campground, we'd swim every night on summer nights. We'd say, this is our cabin. It was pretty good. It wasn't easy either. You know, there's a lot of stories in the book why those were the days where there wasn't much work on the island. And it was pretty isolated. For sure, it was a beautiful place. So getting married came later. Yes. And I want to spoil the surprise. It's funny, in my life, I used to say, marriage doesn't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. Eventually, I felt like, oh, I think it matters. Yes, didn't come to much, much later. And it was fun because it was like a surprise wedding. For who? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had to spring it on Rick. But no, it also surprised my children, which was super fun for me to spring a marriage on your grown children. All the recipes in the book do not have to do with food. There's a soap recipe in there. For many years, I ran a little side business, Starfish Soap Company, so it made sense. It was part of my life. So I have a Himalayan salt bar recipe, which is very popular. So I thought it made sense to include that, for sure. I'm always good for a soap recipe, so I'll have to check that out. Please do. What is your favorite food recipe in the book? My favorite has to be my Baba's Russian pelmeni. They were something that she made on special occasions, and then eventually I taught my family how to make them. We also called them kreplach, but for the book, I called them by their proper name, pelmeni. So good. They're like pierogies, but you fill them with meat, and you pinch them closed. They look like little ravioli, and you boil them and slather them in butter and mustard for some strange reason. But anyone that I knew growing up, if I mentioned Kreplach or Pilmeni, they always go, oh, I miss them. So I knew it had to be in the book. You had me at butter. Yes. Oh, they're <laughs> so good. And what does Rick think of the book? Rick, funny enough, has never read the book. It's very personal. I put a lot of details in there about our life, intimate details. 
and I think that's hard for him. He supports me wholly on the book. He believes in me, but he says, I just can't read it. And I understand and I totally get it. I have two daughters, one who's read it and one who is not. So I get it. It's just maybe too close. I actually have people sometimes come up to me. I still do the markets often on Gabriola Island and someone will come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe what you put in that book. Like she said, the sex. And then Rick will walk by and he'll go, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, oh, never mind, dear, never mind. Margo, I understand your book has been recognized by Taste Canada. Yes, I'm super excited. Cooking Tips for Desperate Fishwives has been shortlisted for Taste Canada's Culinary Narrative Award. So sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to see what will happen. A yummy award. Yes, yes. When the Today in BC Made in BC Book Club continues, Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor of Vancouver and UBC professor, talks about his book, Decrim. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Kennedy Stewart, British Columbia is in the first of a three-year trial period for decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of hard drugs. Your book, Decrim, outlines the groundbreaking challenge in Canada's approach to drug use and recognizing the overdose crisis as a public health issue. Perhaps you could share with us what you felt when you became aware of the severity of the problem in Vancouver. I've been aware of overdoses way back in the early 2000s around the battle with the supervised consumption site in Vancouver. And that was a different problem and it went away for a while. There were still deaths, but... When I got to Parliament in 2011, there started to be conversations about decriminalization, but it was really all gobbled up eventually by cannabis legalization. That really was what, through Parliament, when I was there from 2015 to 2018, that was the main topic of discussion. It wasn't really until I became mayor in 2018 and was able to talk to firefighters and peer workers and families that you really recognize the scope of the problem. I've been aware of it through most of my career, but it really hit home when I became mayor. Perhaps we can clarify the difference between decriminalizing and legalizing when it comes to this issue. Legalization is essentially you can legally buy, possess, distribute a kind of a substance. So cannabis is legal now. You can go to a store and buy it. You can possess it. You can have it at home and you can apply for licenses and sell it. But decriminalization means that you can possess something personally, you can hold it and you won't be arrested, but you can't sell it or distribute it or produce it. So that's still illegal. So it really takes the pressure off the user and still applies the full extent of the law, the prohibition to the producers and retailers. As you mentioned, Vancouver's long been at the forefront of drug policy reform, as you wrote in the book. But decriminalization is much different than the first authorized needle exchange program. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a lot of experiments with kind of individual facilities. We had needle exchanges, like you say, which were small programs. Even this supervised consumption site was a program or a project. But decriminalization is a massive policy change. It affects the whole province and it affects everybody. It's essentially an adjustment in the law. You're really moving from facilities to policy change. And that, I think, is an important thing for people to know. 
Kennedy uh, politics must play a big part in all of this as well, trying to have all the players on side to make something happen. So when we're talking about decriminalization, everyone's going to have something to say about it. There's Vancouver's fractured party politics and the province and the federal government. And you were in a unique position of being in City Hall and knowing the players in Ottawa. Absolutely. This whole issue of drug use and now this overdose crisis that we've had since 2016, where we have one person dying a day in the city, six in the province and 20 across the country. At the macro level, it's a topic a really uncomfortable topic, I would say, in most households across the country. 20% of Canadians have used our drugs in their life, and many, 15, 20, 30% of the country know somebody who's died. So this is a topic everywhere, but it's such an uncomfortable topic because people really don't know what to do. They know there's tragedy unfolding every day, but they're not quite sure what to do about it, and that's really where the debate is. What's interesting about decriminalizing drugs is, although drug users have forever been pushing for it, it wasn't until the police, the National Association of Police Chiefs, came out with a paper 2019 saying we should decriminalize drugs. That really, I think, started the ball rolling at the national level. The police coming in and having a clear statement on how to address this crisis and then followed by, for example, Bonnie Henry who had a position paper and then lots of conversations around municipalities where... I've run into lots of mayors from small towns who said, oh, our volunteer firefighters are having to revive their friends over and over again. So sometimes policy issues get so big, they overwhelm politics and you do have to take measures or just admit that you're willing to let people die. You're going to see it debated over and over again, but I'm sure glad we're trying decriminalization here in BC because it'll at least give us a test if this is the right thing to do. You mentioned the legalization of marijuana across the country. Did that have any impact on the fight to decriminalize hard drugs? It did in the sense that it sucked all the oxygen out of the room for drug policy reform. If you remember the 2015 election when Mr. Trudeau came out and said, I'm going to legalize cannabis, it shocked the whole country. But really, Canadians are ready for that. He was swept into power and then that happened. But The debate through Parliament for those years, he was elected in 2015 and it wasn't legalized until 2018, really sucked the oxygen out of the room when it came to talking about any other kind of drug policy reform. The Conservatives, they knew they lost the battle on legalizing cannabis, so they immediately moved to hard drugs. And the Conservatives would say over and over, Trudeau's going to legalize heroin and give it to your kids. And so Trudeau really backed off from any kind of a drug policy reform and, in fact, told me twice to my face that he would never decriminalize drugs. That's why, and I tell this story in the book, is, is it's quite remarkable that this actually happened. You had a unique relationship with Justin Trudeau as a member of parliament. Yeah, we were both third benchers in the House when I was elected in 2011. That is, if Canadians know front benches were the prime minister and leader of the opposition said, and as you go further back, <laughs> we have less and less power. Of course, he's reached higher heights than myself, but we did joke about that as backbenchers. And then uh, a bit of an adversarial relationship in 2015, when he became prime minister, I was very opposed to the then Kinder Morgan, now Trans Mountain expansion pipeline. And When I became mayor, we actually developed a really, I would say, warm relationship where I thought he was so generous with his time when I met with him and I thought I'd only have five minutes to talk to him and he would give me 45 minutes where we could just sit and talk about problems. And so I feel like I got to know him 
well. And I knew in his heart he wanted to do more, but the politics of, of this topic is very difficult. And But I do think he is Canada's greatest drug policy reformer with the cannabis legalization and now trying decriminalization in BC and safer supply programs. You mentioned Dr. Bonnie Henry, and in the book you write about the report that she published in 2019, I believe it was called Stopping the Harm, and she urged the province to decriminalize people who possessed controlled substances for personal use, and that was responded to negatively by the provincial government. I was rereading all that when it was happening in 2019, and it was really an astounding report by Dr. Henry. It was very clear. It had one recommendation, and it told the province, you don't need the federal government to do this. You can do it yourself. And it was basically slapped down by the province. And again, what makes that we have decriminalized now this pilot program for three years so remarkable is both the prime minister and Premier John Horgan were opposed to it and said it on numerous occasions. So I think that's what makes it a story worth telling. That's politics. Yes, it is. And how you can get things done is also the lesson of the book. Tell us about Susan Havelock. That's difficult to talk about. My brother-in-law, Ray Havelock, who I've known for now at least 15 years, I found through various meetings that his sister, Susan, was in the downtown east side. And when I was mayor, she died of an overdose. She'd been using for a very long time. And I tell the story in the book about how she'd been in and out of prison and how she'd been all the things that she tried to do to get off drugs. And it really informed me in a very sad and tragic way about how we have to do more and things differently. Met Susan, but in the end, very sad to go to her remembrance service in the middle of COVID, all with the N95 mask on in the pouring rain. And I use her story through the book to, to really make this real for people because if you haven't experienced a death in your family or a loss, it's important for you to hear what other families are going through. And that's why her story is really central to this book. Kennedy, what do you think the biggest misconception is about this issue? So what I hear a lot is that these folks just have to get off drugs. These drugs are so toxic and so addictive that it's almost impossible to get off them now. 90% of the people that go into rehab, abstinence-based rehab, relapse. What we're doing isn't working, and what it's doing is costing people's lives. It is the number one killer of young people in British Columbia now, the largest killer of kids aged 10 to 18. We can't keep our heads in the sand here. We have to try different things. And in abstinence-based programs, everybody says, oh, just send them off to rehab and they'll be better or even worse, use involuntary treatment. That is never going to work. You should really listen to the doctors and the health professionals and the police who have written lots of informed reports on this, and we have to move in the direction that I outlined in the book, decriminalization, safer supply, and really treating it like a medical emergency that it is. The opposite of decriminalization is criminalization. So if you think arresting a 15-year-old kid who has some cocaine on them is going to somehow help them, it's not. And I think that's where people get scared. You get so much propaganda from the United States and all these places but really, we trust our doctors, and they're the ones giving advice here that really is what we're following. You also outlined in the book what you believe to be a range of treatment programs for those that are in need. Again, I'm not an expert in this area. You know, I put my mouth guard in on the <laughs> going and wage the political fights. But safer supply programs where you're substituting clean drugs for this poison stuff, and it's so deadly. 
like fentanyl, how this all occurred was that people that used heroin or cocaine, whether regularly or on the weekends, their drugs began to get poisoned with fentanyl. And fentanyl is a hundred times more toxic than morphine. And you take one grain, you can be dead. And so the doctors are saying, we've got to find a substitute. And we've done that with alcohol in the past. My family growing up in Nova Scotia, they are all prohibitionists. They thought alcohol was an evil, but in the end, it's better to have pure regulated alcohol that people can buy, at least not get arrested for possessing than it is to, to be drinking moonshine because that, that'll kill you. You mentioned in politics, you put your mouth guard in and wade into the <laughs> battle. As I was growing up in Nova Scotia, I would remind you that politics is a contact sport. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> Kennedy, are all the pieces in place for a positive step forward in the drug overdose crisis? I think it just takes will here. And I think, again, Trudeau gets a lot of guff, right? Somebody told me he was the number one attack person on social media in the world or something. And he's the one that really has to lead this. The premiers all seem reluctant, even though they're in charge of health care. And it's really the federal government that has to do this. And he's shown a willingness to do this in the past. He legalized cannabis. Everybody said this guy was going to fall. It hasn't. These safer supply programs that pilot of decriminalization, like those will really tell us if this is working or not. But it really takes the political will to save lives. And 20 people are going to die today. In Vancouver, I had an email that would come in every Monday that would tell me how many people died, 7, 8, 10, 12, and then how many people overdosed in the previous week, 150, 175. That's relentless. It's not going to go away by ignoring it. And so we got to take some risks. And that's why I wrote the book. I think people that those ones who would attack me on social media for various reasons, I hope they read it and see that this is something that should bring us all together. Conservative, liberals, new Democrats, Greens should all come together and move forward and follow the science. Thanks to Kennedy Stewart, author of Decrim, and Margot Fedoric, author of Cooking Tips for Desperate Fishwives for being with us on this edition of Today in BC's Made in BC Book Club. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.